Hi guys, I'm Chris. And I'm Mike. And welcome back to No Limits, a Mitrap podcast. So what have you been doing this week, Mike? Man, I've been getting ready for a bathroom remodel. <laughs> Boom. Yeah, we're uh it's our first home improvement project, so uh man, we've been running around to the stores picking out tile and all that business. <laughs> That's exciting. Grown up things. Right? I know. Home ownership, man. I am not looking forward to that. You rent your place, right? I rent my place, but we're looking to buy when we move down to DC, so nice. We'll be looking nice. maybe be a future homeowner. Nice. It's yeah, it's exciting. It's fun. The uh, market Yeah, it is. The market's just so crazy down here, man. Yeah. It's crazy. It'll be interesting. Yeah. So. Anything new with you? I uh, just bought my son his first uh, golf set. There we go. Pretty excited about that. Get him As, started. Uh, friends of the pod will know that uh, i am been into golf this summer. Uh, got out three times last week, so that was good. There you go. Not getting much work done. To get into it today, we have to welcome our newest patron, and she yes, is welcome. our first special operator. Sherry, Boom, baby. Sherry F. We are happy to have you, Sherry. Thanks for supporting the show. It's thanks to you and all our other patrons. We are able to commit to four episodes a month, making this pretty much a weekly podcast. And so thanks for your patronage. You can find Sherry on Twitter at SherryFoster14. And we are getting close to covering our podcast operating costs, which means... In the next couple of months, we will be setting up our first donation to the Prostate Cancer Foundation as a way to give back for all the work that they do uh, with veterans. Yes, super excited about that. So thanks to our patrons, we are very close to being able to put together our first donation. Yeah, and to all our listeners, uh, you too can join this elite group and become a patron of our show, just like Sherry F., Peggy G., Catherine C., Ray M., and Jeff P., by clicking that little orange button, support us on Patreon button on our website at mitrappod.com. All right. So what are we covering in today's episode? Right. So we just finished our two-part podcast going in detail in uh, a summary of the book. And today we're going to be doing our deep dive in sort of the themes of what we gathered. And we're going to talk about some of our favorite characters, some of the things we liked, some of the things we didn't like, and finish up with our zero-sum game. So, you know, what what was your initial reaction about the book, Mike? Well, Chris, I guess you could say my review of the book is best summed up in the form of a limerick. Oh, a limerick, huh? <laughs> Did I tell you about this? I started posting on Goodreads all of my reviews in a double limerick format. <laughs> I, I remember when uh, you we were first starting the podcast, you pitched some segments to me and you're like, I think we should do reviews in a limerick. And I was like, oh, I'm not that poetic. So well, I'm I, seeing you're, you're really four four months in, you're bringing it back. Well, initially, actually, I mentioned haiku to you. And you told oh, me yeah, you're not a fan okay. of the haiku. And uh, <laughs> I don't know, it brings a little rhyme into the picture. So I went with limericks and uh, right. kind of just came to me for Lethal Agent. So I ran with it. Well, let's hear it. Let's hear <laughs> All it. right. Well, here's what I posted on Goodreads for Lethal Agent. Deep in the Mexican jungle, rap stirs up quite the rumble. A book for our time, rap pedals a dime. A race for the border, they tumble. Fast-paced, action-packed, rap's maneuvers got me jacked. A sick kill with a crossbow, a threat we all know. With Mills, the rap sagas intact. Boom. That was sick. There it is. You you were able to encapsulate one of a couple of my favorite things from this novel in that haiku without even, we didn't even talk about this. No. The whole, I, the crossbow scene, I think is one of the best, like I've never seen Mitch Rapp kill with a crossbow and it was amazing. I think we're going to be on the same page with our winners and losers at the end of this uh, episode yes, here. very much so. Yeah. So that was let's, a good haiku. You, I mean, uh, limerick. you like that? Well, um, I got one for total power. There will be more limericks in the future, Chris. I think a new segment segment is brewing. So <laughs> there will be more limericks. I think we need nice. a meme too. Probably. <laughs> Alright, so let's let's kick off this with just first starting off with the title of the book, right? You have Lethal Agent, and as with most novels, the Lethal Agent sort of is always a double edged sword, you know, two meanings. And in this, you know, I think 
we have both the lethal agent that is Mitrap and, you know, his endeavors. And then you also have the lethal agent that is these, this virus, this, you know, um, that is pretty cr- scary. And, you know, we should mention that this, this obviously came out before the current times and is modeled off of the previous pandemic, SARS. And so what did you think of the title, Mike? Great title. Nailed it. Perfect meaning, both cases. I mean, Rap's always a lethal agent, but this time he's going to get infected with a lethal agent. He can't do anything about it. And I guess at the same time, we have Halabi is this lethal agent because he's modernized. He's really looking at America and our vulnerabilities in a different, more creative way. And he's also taking ISIS to a more professional, Western-trained, Western-educated caliber. And so uh, he's also going to be a lethal agent. But there's one more lethal agent, though, who's going to come up a lot in this podcast, who's kind of working against America from the inside, perhaps not even knowing the damage she's causing, but the politicians like Christine Barnett. So... I don't know. I think Lethal Agent nails it in more than just those two ways. We get a good three or four different right. sub-meanings to that title. Yeah, I think, I don't know, just initially, I, I really enjoyed this book. I think, and after listening to a couple of um, the podcasts that were interviewing uh, Kyle about around the time this book came out and, and hearing some of the things that he said, this book is really brings me back to beginning stages of Vince. And I, it's honestly kind of cool that we did it now. Right mm-hmm. after reading Transfer of Power and the Third, third option, option, because this sort of because uh, Kyle had sort of taken his own little you know path, bringing Mitrap into new places, and in this book we 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 bring back that whole idea of the politicians being the secondary villain, right? And we have a very I don't know I felt like this book was very old school Vince. That's how yeah. it felt. No, I I agree and. Kyle has said that that's what he was going for after taking some liberties with Red War, kind of going a different direction. I, I love Red War yeah. too. Like, oh, I love it. I'm not saying that I I wanted. Sure. I was craving this, but I I, I loved it. The, yeah. I agree with you, but there was a subsection of fans who did think he kind of went away from Vince's style, and he did. And I don't think that's a bad thing at all. Uh, I think Mitch was still Mitch was just being Mitch. Um, I thought it was fine, and I thought the times called for it, right? With Russia, the political – how he handled the political nature of Russia made sense in that book. But you're right. He came back to a formula here. For example, look at the author's note in the beginning, how he's obscuring the anthrax production and the border crossings. That's very transfer power-like. And then even the very ending – having uh, Coleman go out and take the bad guy in an epilogue, or I guess that was the last chapter, but that was very early Vince, his way of writing that the bad guy is taken out in this one-on-one kind of battle in the last chapter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I agree. I think Kyle got a lot right in this book besides just the virus and predicting the global pandemic. Like a lot of people, a lot of people will look at that and say, wow, that's the reason this book is so, adept for our times. I I think there's more to it, though. I think what he really nailed was the current political climate at large, and not right. just in response to this event. Yeah. I think, like, let's, let's, let's get into some of the themes. In. And one of the first things that I really picked out was the, the idea of really grasping the state of the USA and our current political climate and entwining it into a book and making it, you know, so approachable and understandable yeah. in this work of fiction. I don't know. Just yeah. the, not only the fact of the, the coronavirus, but just bringing in these political characters and how our nation is run and, and really like fully encapsulating in in this book, which I, yeah. I feel like in the past, maybe that hasn't been, I, I guess his interactions with Russia were obviously sort of mimicking what's going on in Russia now, but, you know, everything else in these books really hasn't been, it was sort of two, you had our universe and then the Mitrap universe, but this was really overlapping the two. Yeah, it was. I mean, even if you think about Al-Qaeda and all the Middle East terrorism cells, obviously it was, you know, it's it's kind of the same story, right? Like you're going to write it, they have motivations and you describe their motivations as if they existed in the real world. 
But to turn that on its head and describe the motivations of American politicians and our political system that appropriately, we get an overview of what America's like at the time. And so here's a quote from the second chapter of the book. America is as weak as it has been in 150 years. Its people are consumed with hatred for each other. They see themselves as having been cheated by the rest of the world, stolen from, taken advantage of. The 24-hour news cycle continues to reinforce these attitudes, as do the Russians' internet propaganda efforts. And the upcoming presidential election is amplifying those divisions to the point that the country is being torn apart. Chris, that last line, and the upcoming presidential election is amplifying those divisions to the point that the country is being torn apart. That's Holy very crap. Very for right now. Yeah. He, he, he described not only 2016's election, but also the 2020 campaign primary season and, and run up to the election. That's yeah, it. That's no, some great writing that's and, it. and really trying to bring in. I liked the overlap between the rap verse, you know, because like a lot of these things. Yes, they could happen, but we we often sort of put it away as oh, this is fiction. But in this book, I really felt like it was reality. Yeah, like I was reading something that could happen, and then like the fact that this is about a virus that, and then we actually were in a time of a virus. I don't know. We're gonna get into that more later, but you know, yeah, this book just felt I don't know very real. It also felt real because of this dialogue between Mitch and Claudia and. At first, I read it as it's just Rap wanted to get out earlier. Now he met somebody and she's trying to convince him to get out and lay low and spend their life together. And I was like, okay, this is kind of cliche. Everyone but wants to get Mitch Rat Mitch out. You know? They want to get Mitch out. But but the words the the words in the dialogue so closely relate that not just to the same old I want to get out and lead a happy life. It's more related to the political climate's changing and your options if you were a special operator or you right. were in the military, your options are limited. I mean, I think he said she's trying to argue with him and she says, what'll happen when the real shit hits the fan? What are they going to be do? What is America going to do if they're faced with something that can't be fixed by a Facebook petition? And Mitch says that actually. And then Claudia says, you know, your America is changing. She's not just saying, let's get out because I want a nice life. She's saying, America is going to turn on you, their hero. Because of everything you did to save them, they're not going to give a crap in today's changing world. You're just going to be labeled an enemy by some new administration that hated right. the previous administration. And so it's not just the same old story. She's really adding something new to this argument based on what's going on in the political climate. Genius. Right. Yeah, and I also – I like this quote that uh, Halabi actually brings in sort of to – state how, you know, it's his rationale in terms of, like, why he hates America and, and, you know, what he views America is. And he states that Americans are people of extremes, prone to fits of rage and self-destructiveness, but also in uh, possession of an inner strength that no one in history has been able to overcome. Like, that is some deep shit right there. But that's, again, it's not just a throwaway of, I hate Americans because I'm a radicalized, you know, fundamentalist. It's, again, I'm going to use that as their vulnerability because I right. see it. It's not just going to motivate me f towards hate. It's going to motivate me to bring ISIS into its next stage. I like we're, I'm going to pick that apart and play on it and use these politicians and all this, these, this political climate and the media, and I'm going to manipulate it. But at the same time, he knows it's why America has lasted and why no caliphate in the modern age has been able to take it down. He's saying it's because we need to learn from them about their strengths. They still have this inner strength and um, break that down from the inside. I think a lot of, you know, sort of this theme of really overlapping the current political stage is can be summed up with the, the character of Christine Barnett, Christine Barnett, and how she embodies everything that's wrong with politics. And again, you know, uh, listening to Kyle's interview with the, the crew, the crew review guys, he he stated that he wrote the character purposefully to he purposely didn't say political party she was a part of. So if we if we look back in history in the books, we know that President Alexander actually was a Democrat. So because she's the opposing party, she would be a Republican. If, if obviously Kyle has taken liberties to change things, and who knows what he wanted, but he said he 
purposely wrote this book so that way neither neither of them had a political party. And he wrote it that this character had both elements of Trump and Hillary so that way when a, a person was reading this book and they were they could see whoever they wanted to see they could see in this character. And I yep. that was great because obviously when I was reading this, you know, I saw elements of Trump, I saw elements of Hillary. I just thought, what what a great character development to be able to do that, yep. to put that, to allow the reader to, you know, based on their hatred or, or, or prejudice or, or whatever, they could sort of associate this character with someone. Yep. Like, that that's such great character, character development, I think. That's what literature should do. And Kyle's showing he's a master. It shouldn't really reinforce your biases, right? And it shouldn't be a straight analogy, Right. A one-to-one of the real world. It's like Tolkien, right? He always said, I never want the Lord of the Rings and the universe to be read as pure analogy. And he kind of wanted to push C.S. Lewis to do this better, thinking like, oh, Narnia was just related to, you know, yeah. the spiritual world in heaven. And then, you know, Aslan the Lion is the redemptive God. figure of Christ yeah. and God. And it, and Tolkien pushed that literature and art should not be analogous, but it should highlight the real world and should transcend that. Tra- yeah. Transcend it exactly. Rise above it, but at the same time, understand it. You know, come up with themes and characters and interactions that help you understand the real world, but without being a one-to-one, very simple Democrat, good or bad, right? Republican, good, bad. And so I think Christine Barnett does that. Uh, you read it and you could pick different things and say, Oh, that that sounds like a problem that the left is having in recent decades. Or well, that's an issue that's on the right right now in a Trump administration. But it's never that one-to-one analogy where you very quickly jump to a conclusion and condemn one side because of it. It's not very jingoistic the way he writes exactly. his character. Yeah. I don't know. Like some of the things that she does is just, you know, it's a dirt. crazy, man. I mean, look at this. Uh, she goes, American – and this is a quote – American people don't give a crap about politics at all. What they want is a show and fireworks. Children die while Irene Kennedy covers her ass and Mitch Rapp chases his tail. This is a gift, Kevin. Use it. And she's talking about a threat, a terror threat, an attack on the homeland, especially a bioweapon. And she's saying this is a gift. Let's use it to score political points. How much lower can you get? The lows that she goes to to use anything in political spin in this book is mind blowing. Like I thought, you know, like house of cards type stuff was, was shitty. But in, in this book, some of the things that she uses, you know, it's like, there's no such thing as bad press. Right. You know, it's like, Oh yeah. We could turn it. You say the same thing over and over. You can turn the people against Jesus Christ himself or something. Exactly. Like that. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I really, in, I didn't like the character, but I enjoyed the, the existence of this character. You know, I, I thought that yeah. Kyle did a great job developing this character and putting her in the book. You know, we're, we're probably going to get to this at the end, but I, I, I thought she had, um, her downfall wasn't large enough. That was the one problem I had with it, but. Hmm. Okay. I don't know. I, I think I like the way that he, he found a way for rap to wrap up her storyline and take away her influence without him just going guns blazing, hunting her down. I thought that was a real creative little slip at the end to have him sneak into her her apartment and uh, or her house, toss her the pills. I thought that was a creative way to write her story. I just out. felt that she needed to she have deserved like worse. A, a deserved worse. You know, she didn't. She deserved more than having. You know, the, going that was the easy way out. Well, rap says that he that goes. Was, I'm I'm offering you the easy way out. You'd be a fool yeah, not to take she it. She didn't deserve his she offer. Didn't, she didn't deserve the offer. Okay, okay. That's how I felt, at least. I don't know. Okay, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. There's another quote here that makes you think this character and this storyline was perfect for either the 2016 or 2020 election. It just fits perfectly when she's describing to her chief of staff, quote, what they want, the American people, what they thirst for is to hurt the people they hate. They don't want a politician droning on about unemployment. They want a general. They want to blindly follow someone who can provide them with an enemy to lead them to victory against that enemy, someone who can give their lives purpose. How many people in our last couple of elections, their message was to rally a certain base, 
not in a good way that glorifies the country, but rally that base in a way that creates an enemy for them to unite against. And that enemy, sadly, are fellow Americans. I mean, that's just politics in general, right? It is. It is. Or it's at least, you know, 2020 politics. It's amplified. I mean, now, yeah, in recent times. But again, another way her character just exemplifies the current climate we're in. Yeah. Related to that topic is not only the political climate, but uh, Kyle's ability to weave in a lot of the real world um, into this fictional world. We have the war in Yemen, which before reading this book, I, I, I'm i going to you know, say I'm ignorant here, and I really didn't understand it that much. But mm-hmm. after reading it, I had done some deep diving, and you know, it's kind of crazy what, 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 what's going on over there, as well as like, our strayed relations with other countries such as you know Mexico and Saudi Arabia you know we talked about this before but you know how divided America is not and only because of politics but also the trust in science the trust in our health professionals he weaves the two of those though the real world problems you know talking about the war in Yemen is yet another factor and the humanitarian crisis in the virus being so problematic there exactly right? and so how i think even when Who's the um, who's the doctor on the ground with the NGO? Uh, Victoria. Victoria. Victoria Schaefer. Is that her yeah. name? And she's on the phone with one of her bosses and she's saying yeah. like, we need supplies. And one of his arguments is it's a war-torn, poor country. We're limited. Like he's kind of like defeatist. And I think that happens in the real world, right? Of we have all these aims and agendas and then real world problems and crises make it too hard to get the resources where they're needed most and to develop infrastructure. Right. You're in this shit country that has, uh, you know, X problems, X, Y, and Z contain the virus and get out of there. Get like, out of there. That's it. You know, don't, you know, we, we can't, you know, do the right thing. And I think that's something that just happens in general. And it's kind of scary to think that, you know, vi- maybe viruses like this or, outbreaks like that could happen in these small little villages and because they're you know if halabi never goes there and captures somebody yeah you know probably that you know it, that's exactly what happens they're able to contain it they everyone there dies probably and we could you know because they're not moving around so and it's sadly just another humanitarian crisis that the un will put a statement about and say you know we mourn the loss of so-and-so and then move on yeah so um, i don't know just bringing that into here is another element of sort of bringing the reality into the fiction. That same thing happens with the drug cartels in Mexico. Yes. Yes. You know, it's crazy. Yesterday, the news broke that they found this huge, massive underground tunnel. Don't tell me it's near a shopping mall. It, it was not near a shopping mall, but it was like, it was one of the most super sophisticated, like tunnels that they had seen. That was, wow. it was almost, almost a kilometer long. Jeez. It had like plumbing, electricity. Wow. And the only reason they found it is because of a sinkhole. Oh, a sinkhole opened into it? Yeah. Wow. Because, like, you know, they, they had had a lot of rain. Um, and it was in, this was in Arizona. And, wow. like, I was listening to the BBC World Service, and I heard that come come across. And it reminded me of, like, oh, the only reason they found it is because NASA. And the satellites. Yeah, and the satellites saw this tunnel. And it, apparently it was one of the most sophisticated tunnels they had ever seen. And the month before, they had found another one. And so it had train tracks where they were going to wow. be able to put like on a cart a motorized thing to push in not only drugs but people that's unreal yeah i mean we think so much about the border and the drug issue coming in but human trafficking man is such a terror and i guess this book touches on that with the actual infected victims being humans who pay a coyote to find a route and take them across the border like kyle is touching on some real real deep and really pressing issues in, in our current time yeah, if if you guys, you know, you or you or the listeners ever want to really understand the coyote experience, I, I highly recommend. There's this one episode of This American Life. You can just Google it, mm-hmm. look it up, uh, and it's a reporter that goes. He puts himself through going through it, and essentially, there's this company. It's kind of weird, but have you ever done like a, a hemlock or? some sort of team building exercise. Where yeah, like a ropes do, like, course in the zip Yeah, line. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in Mexico, they offer for like well-to-do companies in Mexico City the experience to cross the border. 
as like a team building experience. What? So this reporter for This American Life went and did it. And like they put you fully through the experience. They like they put you in a bag. They like they, they set off gunfire. Like they actually like release you and like they put off dogs. And it's like the craziest thing ever. Holy like this Lord. podcast was and it like he podcasts and he, you know, documents the entire time. It was a really intense podcast. Wow. I believe um, highly recommend it just to like, you know, hear his experience. And it's all a, uh, I mean, it's kind of crazy that they put it on for these rich people when actually people are doing it, you know, to save their lives. Yeah. That, that's like another aspect of the, the, the business, I guess. Um, that I forget what podcast it was. I don't think it was NPR, but it was a reputable like news source. And, um, they were basically interviewing social workers at the time of the whole Trump's putting kids in cages on the border kind of headlines. And the social worker was begging and pleading the media not to push that storyline because she was saying, look, we interview these families and we have a parent tell us about their kid that they're trying to cross the border with and we, we have them in a detainment facility and they word for word without knowing any English in English say the exact same lines. And she's like, that just shows they've been trained by professional human traffickers right. to repeat these lines as a way to get the kid with you across the border. And so the social worker is like the whole – and it's terrible if we're really separating true and honest families, right? But the social worker is saying it's harder than you think because sometimes when they say this is my kid, they've trained the parent or they've trained the kid to not say anything as a way to sneak in. And oftentimes they're being resold, right? They're being – trafficked by people and so the social workers like it's really deeper than just we're putting them in detainment facilities and ripping kids out of parents arms she's like sometimes the people they're crossing with are their their literal slave owners yeah not their parents not their parents and they're repeating these trained lines by these professional human traffickers saying you must say this when you get across and it's not really a family at all but that whole situation it's terrible. Is, is crazy it's terrible it's terrible it's it's a new situation though to see rap up against, and it doesn't go that deep, right? But still, no. the fact that rap is working on the U.S. border that's that's brand new. I like it. Yeah, it's probably like the the least, you know, this, I don't know, the third plot of the story. That while it was interesting to see rap in this new environment of you know one, although I I will I think I brought this up to you before, but you know, rap is fluent in French. French is a Romance language. So is Spanish. I feel like he should be better at Spanish than he actually like you know portrays in in the book. But anyways, that's a minor that. digression. But um, you know, it's interesting to see him struggling. You know, he doesn't know the language. So while we're on rap in unknown territory, that's another way Claudia is trying to convince him to step back at this point. Yes, you know, kind of saying this is too high risk. You know, this is something new, something unseen. There's probably a new group. Uh, of people out there who sh who should handle this, and there's this funny quote about Rap's tombstone. Did you catch this one? <laughs> I did. I liked it. Rap is trying to. He's processing everything Claudia is trying to tell him about getting out, and he says, "While her assessment was hard to argue with, high risk, low return, that was a front runner for the engraving on his tombstone. Currently in third place behind. Do you think they'll be able to stitch that up? And does anyone else hear ticking?" I love that. <laughs> I love that. That's excellent. I won't have anywhere near as you know greatest quotes on my on my tombstone as as Mitch Rapwell. Overweight man played video games, made pizza, <laughs> <laughs> and occasionally golfed. <laughs> uh, let me change that. Overweight white male <laughs> played video games, <laughs> occasionally golfed, made pizza. <laughs> Mine'll be. Uh... Golf too much, had too many kids, overweight white male. <laughs> hey, at least both of ours might say reads a lot of books. There we go. Read a lot of Mitch books. Mitch Rapp fan. Mitch Rapp fan. <laughs> Mitch Rapp's number one fan. We'll both be Mitch Rapp's number one fan. Badgered Kyle Mills until he agreed to come on the show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me just interview with these guys so he gets off my ass. You know? <laughs> so they stop bothering us on Twitter. <laughs> Uh, who are these guys? Oh, right. Well, that was what David asked us when we first reached out. Like, hey, we're thinking about a Mitch Rapp podcast. He's like, oh, what's your Twitter handle? You've probably been talking and posting about him for years. Uh, nope, never had a Twitter. 
<laughs> no, honestly, we just got into it. We just really like the books. Oh, we've never seen you on social media discussing any books? Nope. <laughs> Wait, you've never been a Mitch Rapp ambassador before? <laughs> What's, What's a Mitch that? Rapp ambassador? <laughs> How do I sign up? <laughs> Can I be one? I didn't know about this. Can I have some? <laughs> if I've been reading these books since I was 15 and didn't know there was an ambassador program. <laughs> Yeah, if I'd have known, I could have gotten an advanced reading copy of all these books for yeah. free. I probably would have signed up really soon. Or... I would have been reading Lethal Agent in like May or something. <laughs> uh, you got to cut that. <laughs> oh, I'll cut some of that, but I'm leaving most of it. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, when Rap's in these new experiences, everything he's been through and learned over his career is what allows him to excel. And right, that's when he's almost most comfortable is when yes. those X variables come into play. And I think he learned that from his mentor, who he had a love-hate relationship with, or maybe hate-hate, but... Um, Good old Stan Hurley. You can't say he didn't learn a lot from the guy. Yeah, and so Stan Hurley comes up in two of this book's greatest quotes. In the first one, he recalls Hurley saying, quote, it's not how you play the game, it's whether or not your opponent ends up dismembered in the woods. <laughs> and I mean, rap learns that, right? He's not sitting around waiting to figure out anything or get the whole intel. He's moving. He freaking right. kills that guy in the woods and he dismembers him by turning his fibula into a lockpick. I think he learned. Awesome. I think he learned a lesson awesome. from Stan. Yeah. No, I think, again, I think rap is able to thrive in this new situation because of his previous experiences. And I really enjoyed being able to see him. You know, we've seen him in the Middle East, we've seen him in Europe, we've even seen him in the U.S., but to put him in a new situation where he, you know, again, doesn't know the territory, doesn't know the language, but he goes back to first principles and uses his knowledge from Hurley and gets the job done. Yeah, he also relies on another piece, actually in all of these books, but we see it yet again, building a team. Yes. And trusting the people around you. Like once somebody's on that team, they're there for a reason and you got to listen to them. Like he does that here. And Irene really is doing that back on the home front with uh, Statham, right? The army specialist on infectious diseases, right? Yes. He doesn't think twice when Statham is telling him you can't blow up or we can't blow up the truck with the uh, infected terrorist. He's like, because then the virus will spread to animals. And the animals can carry it and the blood will get out there. And we get this great quote when he really wants to just ignore it and do what he has to do. He relies on what Statham is saying as the expert. So he says, quote, questioning Statham's knowledge on diseases is like questioning Stan Hurley on Southeast Asian hookers. <laughs> you just don't do it. <laughs> I like out loud chuckled when I read that line. Uh, I, that was funny. That might be one of Kyle's best. Honestly, that's up there. That is up there. Yeah, no, that that quote is great. But you really, he's able to adapt. He trusts his team, and we we don't we don't really see much of Irene in this novel. It's no. probably like the least amount of Irene I think we've seen in the novel in, in a long time. But she gets the job done. She has her little battles with with Barnett in the White House and in in Congress, whatever. But she builds them a team, and they, they develop a strategy that you know ultimately succeeds. Which, yeah. you know, is important. It's pretty cool that those two principles are the reason, you know, rap can succeed in these sorts of environments. And in Total Power Man, we're absolutely going to see that. Yes. That's all I'll say. Our final theme of this book is probably, you know, the elephant in the room that we haven't really talked about. But the use of a coronavirus as a bioweapon, which is very important because we're in a pandemic right now. And not that... It's anywhere nearly as bad as what Yars has the capability to be. You know, we have uh, Mike. You were so kindly to wrap up all the things we know about Yars. So it, Yars has a thirty percent survival rate. Thirty percent of survivors are permanently disabled. Sorry, and healthy adults are infected at the same rate that children and the elderly are. In a village of 75, 25 people died. So that's like you know one third death rate. It's really, really intense. We have, you know, just they—they they talk about services and you know, casual contact can infect people, um, 
and then the infection rate is over 50%. So it's it's very different than what we're seeing now. And I think, you know, in the beginning of this global pandemic, I, I watched, I made the mistake of watching the movie Contagion. Have you seen that one, Mike? No, I haven't. I've heard well, from a lot know, of people that I need to. It's it's a good movie. Good movie. Again, in that movie, the major difference between, you know, COVID-19, YARS, and I forget what the, the name of the virus is in, in that movie, is, is the death rate, obviously, and the, the fact that in both the book we just read and, and, and in the movie, way more people die, but everything else is, you know, pretty much the same, the infectability and just the ease at which this virus can penetrate when we have these novel things. Um, and I don't know, it's just, it's scary, like, reading this book now, I, I wonder if, like, I, I had read it, because I had sort of taken a break from reading, um, I had finished all these books, and then I, I I'd got this book for Christmas, but I, I hadn't read it yet, and then, you know, coronavirus happened, we started this podcast, and then I read it, and I was like, holy shit, Kyle Mills is able to predict the future, um, <laughs> but, I don't know, how did you feel about the use of, you know, the the fact one, the fact that we're in a, a pandemic now and he uses this as a weapon. And two, uh, what did you like the idea of bringing a bioweapon in to a Mitrap novel? I think it was the perfect enemy to bring up at this time. It's really something that could defeat rap, right? When you, when you yes. want to ask yourself, what could bring down rap? And look at everything he's been through in all of these books and what kind of author – would have the ability to write another character that we would just be as equally scared of rap facing. It's like, what are we going to be afraid of is rap yet? Kyle found that thing. Right. And in total power, again, he finds that thing. COVID-19 seems to have happened organically, right? It wasn't weaponized at least as far as we know. And well, the conspiracy theorists, <laughs> the conspiracy theorists might disagree with me and there might be something to it, but Kyle kind of deals with how would it be weaponized? And so this character of Bertrand that we haven't talked about, it was really unique getting inside Halabi's thought process of what he was going to do with Bertrand. And Bertrand had studied pathogens. He right. examined and modeled their paths. He's done like, He's like me. decades of contact tracing. Yeah, like all yeah. the scientists. You're always making computer models. You showed me that other one. I don't even know what I was looking at. <laughs> but... Well, Chris, you're in science, so like, do you feel that Halabi's attack and the way he planned it was that much more dangerous having a specialist like Bertrand that he was pretty much torturing and getting information out of about how to design a pathogen, how to release it, where it should go, what city centers you should pick, because he had all this modeling and this data? Oh, yeah, very much so. I, I think that and again, I think we're going to talk about this a little bit later in our in our lowlights, but the whole anyone can can produce anthrax if they really wanted to. It's like not that hard to do um, with a couple of you know ingredients. And I think that's that's one of the reasons why Kyle mentioned that he sort of tried to obscure some things because of the ease of what anthrax is able to do. I mean, I think I could do it. With the right equipment, you're saying? With the right equipment. I mean, But I, it's not that deadly. That's but I'm, I'm thing, also right? a scientist. I know how to culture things. I know how to, you know, extract things. So, but again, that's the problem with, with anthrax is, is the lack of, or it's infectability. Mm -hmm. So, but the whole, the Yars thing, having that, being able to, that that's sort of the scary thing about this, that these, these diseases potentially could be out there that are more deadly than COVID-19, right? Mm -hmm. And if someone is able to bring them to the United States and using someone who, like an epidemiologist who studies this kind of stuff, or, you know, a virologist who understands epidemiology and where to put these people, how to infect the, the most amount of people, how to potentially allow for adaptation in the virus, because that's key, right? You need this virus to jump and if you want to reach mass max infectability you need it to be able to potentially jump to other things other species too uh, ad sure or adapt to be able to adapt its infectability so therefore like mm -hmm. yeah now it can survive in different surfaces yeah different exactly. surfaces exactly. and different temperatures even have you ever played the game plague inc oh yes 
<laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's a stupid game, and, yeah. and you know, but literally that it teaches you about if you want to infect the world, you need to either be really infectious or you need to have multiple different means of infecting people. So if it was able to mutate and you know, rats can now spread it, I mean, yeah. that's how bubonic Wasn't plague happened, The Black right? Plague, yeah. Yeah. Or if you go to being way more touch-based, where like COVID-19 doesn't seem to be very touch-based, it's very much aerosol or, you know. Mm-hmm. So like, if, but if, if, if COVID-19 was touch-based, then oh, yeah, through contact. It, it would be way more, way more infectable, yeah. right? So. Well, it just makes you wonder, I mean, an epidemiologist and this, like this guy Bertrand can figure that out and maybe weaponize it intentionally, but nature is going to do that as well, right? Isn't that basically evolution and survival of the fittest? Aren't viruses going to do the same thing over, of course, hundreds of years, right? It's a much longer timetable, but are they not also adapting in that way naturally? Like, has COVID been a product of natural selection in terms of the virus itself getting smarter? Like the way the symptoms don't show up, right? For well, that think, two week period. I mean, what's the best disease? Can you answer me? What's the best disease on the planet right now? In terms of most, you would survive the most, it? The most successful. No, no. What, what is the most, in your opinion, what's the most successful disease? I want to say it's something like this COVID, but I'm sure scientifically it's something that we've all just become immune to over years and we it's all have it. It's the common cold. It's a common cold. It's yeah, common something cold. we all have, yeah. Yeah. So viruses don't care about killing. I mean, mm. diseases actually don't, they don't want to kill people. They don't want to. They just care fact, about numbers, essentially, you're saying? That's literally this virus cares about propagating itself. Mm. That is its, its number one goal. Just to stay alive. Is to stay alive, propagate, adapt, live. The moment it, I mean, that's why Ebola is so, is yeah, it's bad, but like, that's why Ebola is never going to be such a bad problem because it, it's too deadly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that's one of the reasons why COVID-19 is such a great, I, I, I shouldn't say that in terms of. Like scientifically, saying, it's scientifically, scientifically yeah. it is a perfect disease. Yeah. It doesn't kill that many, like, you know, its death rate is not that high. Its infectability is really high. Mm-hmm. Um, and the symptoms being delayed is a key thing. And the thing. symptoms are delayed. The, the, a lot of asymptomatic people are, are yeah. getting it. So, yeah, like it's a it's quote-unquote perfect Sure, I understand disease. that argument, yeah. I mean, take all that for what it's worth and then add the layer of it's breaking out in a war-torn country that is already struggling. You know, that might not have been a big deal. But you got to think about resources, like when it happened in a Wuhan, China, you know, in a main urbanized, dense area becomes even that more scary. And then you add on to it, it's in a globalized world of air travel and all sorts of travel. And it's like it becomes global instead of just a local issue. Like I'm sure you mentioned a lot of these could have been and have been in the past. Globalization is changing that. Well, that, and that's exactly why Halabi wants to get them yep. across the American border, make it seem like it comes out of America itself. Yeah, uh, and even at the last minute, he's he's upset, just willing, and he's he's just he's willing to let it go off in Mexico just so he can infect whatever. But it bothers but him; like he doesn't want it, it does to start him. in Mexico. He wants the world to blame the U.S. for starting it. Yeah, but um, again, that's not going to matter because if it got out, it would still reach what hundreds of millions of people. Yeah, and I think it's kind of crazy how he doesn't even care because you know Bertrand even says like this: there's no way to like protect your people. Yeah. Like you'll die too. Like you will die too. Yeah. You know, every like or a certain amount of your people will it will die hit too. the Middle East. And so, and Halabi's okay with that. Yeah, it's crazy. He thinks that by crippling the American government, the American economy, the caliphate can rise, and and it'll be primed to take. I guess that's his end game, right? Is yeah. to have the virus to be able to cripple America, so that way ISIS can can come through and and finally take it, take over. But I don't know. I think just this this plot, the use of the bioweapon, the use of a coronavirus, or or you know, um, a SARS like virus, is really scary to think about. Because yeah, COVID nineteen is. While a lot of people have died, I'm not. I'm not trying to belittle that at all, right? It could be a lot worse if you know we were to look at Yars, something like Yars, and that is scary. The fact that if you want, we're going to use that as a weapon. Yeah, 
I just wonder what if we were reading this book in like 2012 and COVID wasn't going to happen. You know, we wouldn't even know about the potential of it. Wasn't even thinking about it on our minds. I guess it was kind of like that reading it when it first came out in 2019. And then just a short few months or weeks later, even hearing about Corona in, uh, in China. But I just wonder like, how long would we have sat with this book and been like, oh, that was a thrilling book. Would it have played on our psyche so much that it was <laughs> a global pandemic? Or yeah. would it have just been yet another book? And like, oh, it's kind of scary. You know, I hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> like, well, you know, it's interesting. Like uh, Bush was the one who made the whole pandemic like readiness, mm. whatever that we had. Well, I guess we ended up not having it. Anyways, but President Bush was like super scared of a of a pandemic because he, he read a book about the Spanish flu, oh, there you um, go. and then did like this deep dive into you know pandemics, and therefore he wanted to have us ready for one. Yeah. Or um, talking about a team, building a team. I bet he had advisors that that was something that came up and was should have been and was taken seriously. Well, yeah. I mean, I sent you this thing back when when COVID popped off last year. Every year, like a bunch of epidemiologists and virologists get together and have a conference where, and they do like sort of a war game scenario where they're given a, a scenario last year's was a novel coronavirus comes out of Brazil and it has X, Y, and Z. And what are you going to do? Like, what's your plan to contain, stop, mitigate, whatever. So yeah, like people are thinking about this all the time. Yeah. Good. I, I hope we, continue to and fund and provide the resources where necessary for this. You know, I'm a, I'm a biochemist, but it makes me feel like I, I wish I had gotten into virology or, or epidemiology. That, that stuff seems really interesting. And I want to say fun, but just, you know, invigorating. Sure. I'll call you Gabrielle Bertrand from now on. <laughs> oh, please don't. I don't want to be a pussy like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best line on the pod so far. 17 episodes in and we got it. <laughs> I, I don't want to be. I don't want to be like him. I'd rather be like Victoria Schaefer going down with a, with with a fight. You know. All right. Should we get into our um, winners and losers here? Zero sum game. Yeah. Let's start with you. Who was your favorite character, uh, major or minor, and um, why? So I, I liked Halabi as the villain. Because we had sort of got to know him a little bit while he wasn't a major character in the previous book or two books ago, right? I I liked him as a villain. We mentioned this before, but I, I really liked the character. Like, I didn't like her, but I liked the, the idea of the character of Christine Barnett. And I liked uh, Carlos Esparza, the, the, the freaking doofus drug cartel guy. I thought he was an interesting, uh, you know, plot plot development although i do think that we, i think we're going to get into this uh, very soon but i thought that the drug cartel was sort of the weakest part of this of this novel mitch's time with them in mexico was sort of the some of it felt a little bit out of place or like a little bit drawn out but um i, I liked i thought he was a funny character yeah i agree reminded me of uh have you seen narcos no uh he reminded me of uh, yeah not of like pablo escobar but like one of the other one of the other drug lords that gotcha. are like they're a fucking dumbass on that show and just do stupid shit with like <laughs> opponent with like you know horses and for the kids and then they shoot up everything. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. you got That's how you do these things. You build community. You give people in desperate measures, you know, a sense of hope and community, and uh, they'll do whatever you want. Yeah. But who were your who were your favorite characters? So I don't know if I really had a favorite because I think they were all well written for the purpose they needed to play. Like you nailed it about Halabi and Barnett, even Carlos Esparza, I thought just every character represented who and what they were supposed to perfectly. Yeah. None really yeah. stood out as a a better character than another. They were all pretty much well-rounded. I mean, I really liked Victoria Schaefer. We don't get much of her, but in terms of likability of a person, she was definitely the best. Like you wanted to support her work, defending the people of this village and getting them what they needed, wanting to alert the NGOs and the upper echelons of these 
health organizations about the problem that Yars could become. She wasn't around long, but it definitely stood behind everything she was for. So it was kind of cool to have a character like that. Yeah, I wasn't, I, I didn't think she was going to die. Like, Me neither. You know, I didn't see that coming. Yeah. Um, her death. That was, I think I mentioned that before on the pod, but like I, I thought that, you know, because again, and this is also a trope, you mentioned this too, a trope that Vince had done where he builds up this, a character and you, you learn so much about them and then boom, they're killed, yeah. right? That's another way that in this book, Kyle was hearkening back to the early days of Vince and um, really being true to his style while bringing the storyline into a brand new arena. Right. Yep. That's another example. How about action, though? Because to me, this book had more action than many of the others. It, it seemed nonstop. I was loving it. What was your favorite? What stood out to you? Um, in terms of like my favorite action scene, it has to be either Mitch, Mitch's like race through the woods, like his his test that he has in Mexico, um, like the badass scene where he you know, has the dogs and throws cocaine on them and gets away. And then he shows up the next day, like dressed in one of the drug Lords, like henchman's suit, you know, military suit with, with his gun, you know, just like a badass. Um, I really enjoyed those two scenes, although I didn't really like the rest of the Mexico part, but like it was at that or the whole finish of the book. Like I, I felt like when I was reading, I, I both read this book and I listened to it on, um, audiobook and I felt like the first part of the first three uh three fourths of the book was like wow we're not that far along and then the last fourth of the book went by like light speed yep and we and it culminates with the whole race you know with Mitch trying to find the truck with these infected people and the race to the border and then he gets he get he gets the truck he kills um uh, Halabi's henchman and then he has to get past the Mexican government because freaking Barnett screws him on that. Yeah. And like, you know, he has all of his friends. Like that was, that was great. I, I love yeah. those, those two scenes. I'm with you. The The action was nonstop, but that was definitely the best one. The highway chase scene was one of those. I can't put the book down. I need one more minute to finish this, but I really, I can't get over both the opening cave scene with the crossbow, how yes, well written that, that was. was. Oh, I forgot about that. And I just can't get over the cage and the lockpick and all the stuff that happens at Carlos's house when he first, you know, goes into Carlos's bedroom, puts on his clothes, sits down and orders breakfast with the maid. Oh, that was great. That, that whole was sequence great. was awesome. But for action, definitely the ending, that race to the border, for sure. Also, I did enjoy with Scott and his men the the trip to the the village and them them getting ambushed. Yep. Oh yeah. That, that's right. That was a good that was a really good scene. And then you know it ends with like, oh, we don't know where Mitch is and then boom. That's right. He shows up at the the cafe, the cafe like the next day. I forgot you know, about like, the Yemen, the, water. the desert fight scene. That that might tie for That me. was really that's good. That's up there. You're right. The, I'm thinking so much about the ending of this book cuz it was so heavy and quick with so much going on, but the first First third of the book was also pretty awesome on action back in the Yemeni desert and the cafe. Yes. Forgot about that. And that's when, yeah, that's good stuff. So I have a question for you, Mike. Who do you think is the the bigger villain in this novel? Is it Halabi and his methods? Is it the cartel? Or is it uh, the politicians? Well, I like how you coined the term big bad. Like Halabi is that big bad. And Halabi is the one with the plan that could potentially... Right bring down the world. So while he's the the big bad villain, I think Barnett is the true villain in this book. Yeah, I, me too. I think Mills more than the pandemic, more than the drugs. I think what he wanted to come through was the craziness of our political system, particularly starting with the 2016 election, but by no means is that where all the problems began, but or end. Or end, right? But I think particularly the way he wrote Barnett so extreme and how even her political henchman, um, Gray, her chief Gray. of staff, who was supposed to be very cunning and very you know, Machiavellian, she supersedes him very quickly in how far she's willing to go and how evil she is. So I think that message of what she would do to tear down America or how she was tearing down America was the biggest villain. 
you know, us, you know, put aside the whole halabi. I'm trying to end the world, kill hundreds of millions or billions of people. Like besides all that, Barnett truly represented evil the most in this book. Right. I I did have one one more question for you, Mike. How did you feel about uh, President Alexander in this novel? It's a sort of a minor question, but you know, he really try is he's riding out the rest of his presidency. He doesn't want to really get involved, although he he is willing to give Mitch like the blanket pardon. At, in the end, but you know, he sort of seems like he's very much a, I don't know, what is the term? A lame duck president? Yeah. No? Yeah. Lame duck. Uh, he, and, but I love Alexander. Like exactly. I've loved him from previous books. That's why like, I just, I didn't like, I was torn. How he was acting. Yeah. And maybe, but, I, but he redeemed himself a little bit with the pardon. Sure. Bringing Mitch in. This might bring us into the parts we didn't like about the book, but there is definitely a move and a shift away from Alexander and how the presidency can be this grand imposing force for good mm-hmm. is kind of moved away from in this book. You know, the force for good is going to be, well, one rap, of course, but it's going to be like Victoria Schaefer, who's on the ground. It's going to be Gary uh, Statham, who's an expert on diseases. You know, we're moving away from a strong oval office dictating the pace, you know, dictating the solutions. Yeah, I agree. Alexander came off weaker, and maybe that's a testament to Kyle's writing and understanding of the political system. You know, in an election year, the sitting president loses a lot of capital, a lot of influence. Right. They very often are – their hands are tied by their party because the party no longer sees them as the boss. The party is busy picking their next figurehead that they're going to get behind. And very often, if you have to, usually the vice president, right? But even if you have to kind of lower the the standing of the current sitting president, you do that in hopes that your next candidate is going to pick up steam and be able to, you know, say the right things instead of the current president saying the right things. So maybe he's on to something with that, but I still didn't like how, or it was a little disappointing to me how little Oval Office scenes there were, you know, where it's Alexander and Kennedy you know, I just wanted to see more of that Oval Office White House kind of stuff. Instead, we got the campaign stuff with Barnett, which I also liked as well. So it was like a catch-22 there. Yeah. I wanted more Kennedy in this book. I don't know. I, or, I don't know. I just felt myself missing Kennedy in this book. I agree. Bit. I agree. Is there anything else while we're on it that you thought Lethal Agent fell short of your expectations on? No, uh, I mean, I, I mentioned this earlier, but... Yeah, I don't know. The while I realized I liked the idea of putting Mitch in this new environment and putting him in Mexico and stuff, but some of the see, you know, the getting to the cartel and like some of the scenes of the cartel just seemed, I don't know, unneeded. Like they they could have had him. They needed to get him to the virus, and they needed to get the virus here. So I I realized that's how he picked cartel. Like that's that's how we do it, and I think. He's mentioned that he had this idea, and he's toyed with this idea previously in his Mark Beeman series, where Mark Beeman is an FBI agent, and in one in the, his first novel, The Rising Phoenix, where what if the drug tra- trade is tainted, right? So it's it's like a it's different concept, but he obviously had something floating in his you know some of the ideas floating in his mind, mm-hmm. and I get how he brought that in here. I don't know. I just felt like some of it was just fluff. Yeah. I could see that, but I I did like when the novel pivoted to the drug cartels and we were inside them. And what I felt was fluff was a bit earlier on with the Anthrax production, to be honest with you. I thought the author's note was going to really catch my attention when he said, I deliberately changed things with Anthrax production. And then it seemed to be the side plot that I didn't really end up caring about. And so I thought wanting to stir up hysteria using the anthrax. And originally, you remember that silly um, celebrity scene? Uh, That that was another scene that I was just like... Rap takes the side job to protect two like pop stars, I think. I don't know, it reminded me like Justin Bieber. Justin Bieber, somebody, and his (laughs) girlfriend, and... I was like Gigi Hadid. I don't know someone like that. And I think there was a reason for that. I think it put him in California, where they were going to find the drug tunnel. I forget the reason, but I was like, all this because Halabi wants to threaten celebrities with anthrax to create panic. Guess what would create panic? Two months after you let the Yars people in, say 
guess why everybody's been getting sick and dying recently and you can't figure it out? And he goes, this guy. Like, to me, well, I guess that would have been more effective. You had to have Mitch overcome it. So, you you know, I see why you couldn't do that. Sure. No, I I agree, too. But but to to make the whole anthrax distraction just – and to even distract Bertrand, to make Bertrand look like and dress up like he's producing anthrax and make videos of it, I guess he wants the propaganda to create this hysteria. But too drawn out and as a side plot, it didn't really get me. The R shit was scaring me out of my wits. The anthrax stuff is like, can we get over with this now? Yeah. So that's just me. All right, that, that's what we didn't like about it. What 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 do we like best about this novel? Because this is one of my this is one of my favorite novels. So I will say, like, while I had some qualms, this is one of my favorite Mitchum novels. I'm with you. I mean, I want to get to our final writings because what I liked was every other thing in this book, every other character, every scene, all the action nonstop. What Mitch does. What his team does, I love how we see in the beginning he's with Coleman and the boys. You know, Maz is there, Charlie Wicker's there, and then at the end they're all back again and they're all helping out. We even see Fred Mason, the pilot. Yes. He comes yes. in. Yeah, he comes back with a helicopter to take uh, Coleman to track the truck. Uh, everything else that happened in this book lights out. Absolutely one of my favorites in the whole series. Yeah. So, so yep. I agree with you. I loved everything about this novel i love the plot even even if it was developed before you know our current times i love you know we mentioned the character development i think kyle is very good at that i liked bringing us back to a very flinian style novel of of uh original days and um yeah you know in the end we we get this scene where we don't know if Mitch is going to die. You know, he, yeah. he gets, we're left like those final pages. I'm just reading. I'm like, holy shit. Is Mitch like, <laughs> is Mitch dead? But wouldn't it be crazy if he just left us on a, on a rope? Like if he didn't tell us, you know, if he didn't have the epilogue. Yeah. I, I don't know what I would have done. <laughs> like, yeah, that was crazy. Just wondering, even when Mitch gets infected, fighting with Atia to take over the truck. When you know Mitch gets infected, he's popping these antibiotics knowing they won't do anything, but he wants yeah. to keep his mind in the game. I'm like, crap, could this really be it or could this do serious damage? Yeah. I also wondered at the end, I was left like, does Barnett take the pills? Like, did is she out or is she so evil? She's going to try to come back and she's going to think she can one up rap like her character was so deep. I was even thinking that far ahead. But um, great ending. Great final yes. scenes. Well done, Kyle. So, final ratings, Chris. What do you give in this book? I gave it an A, and I gave it a 9.1, which is higher than I give a 9 to Transfer of Power, which is my favorite novel that we've done thus far. So, pretty high in my standards. I really enjoyed this novel. What about you, Mike? I'm with you. I wanted My first reaction was like, a 9.5 and then it's got to be a sliding scale because i was like well it can't be higher than transfer power for me so i kind of did the opposite my first reaction was it might it might be up there it might crack the top it probably cracks the top five of my favorite rap novels but i just couldn't find it within me to rate it higher than i did transfer a power so I ended up giving it a nine, somewhere in that A minus A range. Looking back, I, I feel like I like Transfer of Power so much I could have gone higher. And if so, I probably would have went higher in this book. Yeah, we're gonna have to once we do more books, we're gonna have to re- redo our rank. Like you know, gotta reevaluate. Oh, I need to regrade, regrade. <laughs> yeah, I gotta reevaluate. But um, this is a great one. Uh, I think when we're we're said and done, this this might just crack into the top five. But transfer power is still up there for me, and this one, this one came really close. It really did. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, looking forward to reading the next one. Yes, or, sir. Um, I've already read it, but talking about the next one, I want to talk about it too. Total Power has been eating at me. I'm ready to, ready to get it out there. Come September fifteenth. Yes, but that's a way off. So, what are we talking about in our next episode, Chris? Next week, right? So, in our next podcast, we have. I'm very excited to be announcing this right now. We have a very special podcast. We are going to be interviewing the one, the only, Kyle Mills. Ding, 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 ding. You're getting emotional here, Chris. You're getting emotional. Our man, David, from Atria Mystery Bus, hooked us up the bus. with an interview. 
with Kyle Mills. So yeah, we're gonna he's doing his press tour for Total Power. Your very own Mitch Rapod is gonna be interviewing him, talking about Total Power, a little bit about the series as a whole, asking him some questions. Can't wait to do that with you, Chris. Because we're so excited about that, our August giveaway is going to be a copy of Kyle's first book ever, Rising Phoenix, signed by the author himself. And we are going to be giving that away to any of our Twitter and Facebook followers. So be sure to follow us on Twitter and retweet that post. Join our No Limits Facebook group, and maybe you can win a copy of Rising Phoenix. Also, check us out on Instagram. Hey, if you're an Instagram follower, just started an Instagram, so we'll be running that special on Instagram as well. Cool. So like a like our post on Instagram, join the Facebook group, or retweet our post, and you can be entered into that. We also are giving away Kyle's first ever standalone novel, so not in the Mitch Rap or Mark Beeman or even Covert One series that he wrote. His first standalone novel, Burn Factor, and that will be our August giveaway for our patrons. So if you want to become a patron this month, please do so. Help us out. We're also getting ready to make our first donation in the next couple of months to the Prostate Cancer Foundation. And uh, we're happy to have you listening in. Yeah. And please, you know, as always, subscribe, rate, and review us using your favorite podcasting platform. You can find us online at MitchRapPod.com or using our Twitter handle at MitchRapPod. And as always, just let Mitch be Mitch. Just a disclaimer, this podcast is not affiliated with Vince Flynn, Kyle Mills, or Simon & Schuster, but thank you to them for bringing us the wonderful world of rap. And the music soundtrack is Guerrilla Tactics by Raphael Crooks.